Well, good morning. It's good to be with you all. Please turn with me to Mark chapter 2. Anybody with a phone these days has grown accustomed to getting scam calls. They come in quite a bit, don't they? You can block them, but they just keep coming. Have you gotten the one uh, where somebody pretends to be from the IRS and they're sending agents to come and kick your door in if you don't give them money now? Uh, then, of course, these have been around maybe the longest. Somebody calls you up and you have been that one in a million, that lucky person who has won something big, and you just got to call in and redeem it. Give them some personal information, maybe your credit card number, and you've got that cruise you've been dreaming about. Uh, then, of course, there are the incessant calls about that extended warranty from your car from the 1990s. You know, that is one extended warranty. Uh, my phone has kindly begun to preface some calls with scam likely. I never take a call when it says scam likely. Uh, I don't have time for that. Now there are some creative people who try to scam the scammers, but it's not me. Uh, there's just some calls you don't take. See it? You know it? You don't take it. There are other calls that you do take. If you have a relative call you, at 2 a.m., you always take that call. You pick that call up. There are calls you don't take, and there are calls you must take. Our text this morning invites us to take a call. It invites us to not let a call go to voicemail. See that in Mark chapter 2. If you're there, please look down to verse 13 and following here. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning that in your kindness you have sent your Son to call on us, to call us to yourself, Lord, to welcome us into your family. We thank you this morning that we gather as your people who have been bought by the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, and called together to be a family welcomed at the table. Lord, we will thank you for that for all eternity. I pray that this morning as we look into your word, that you would help our hearts to grasp that and to rejoice in that. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I think the main call for us from this part of Matthew, we've been moving along in the sections of Matthews and asking, or of Mark, excuse me, asking what, what does Mark want us to get from this? What's his point? We could think of all sorts of things, but what's he getting at here? Uh, I think the call for us from this is the call to follow the one who graciously calls sinners. We want to follow the one who graciously calls sinners. And as we work through our passage, we're going to see both the call and God's grace as we look first at the tax collector at the booth, and then we'll look second at the tax collectors at the table. Verses 13 and 14, we'll see the tax collector at the booth, and 15 to 17, we'll see the tax collectors at the table. Let's look at, through these first few verses here. Uh, it opens up. Uh, you'll remember Jesus was going throughout Galilee, preaching and teaching. He comes back to Capernaum. There he heals the paralytic. And now he goes out again. He's going by the sea. That's the Sea of Galilee. And uh, there's a crowd that's coming to them. And, and again, he's teaching. We see Jesus doing this throughout the gospel. As he's in Galilee, He's constantly preaching, he's teaching, he's healing, he's exercising demons. This is just the bread and butter of this phase of his mission. Uh, he is doing this regularly, and, and we find him doing that here. It says that as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. Uh, we, we, you see here there's a, a roadside stand, and Levi is sitting in it. Now, Matthew's gospel will tell us that Levi, son of Alphaeus here, is also called Matthew. This is the Matthew of the gospel of Matthew. Uh, and, and here he's sitting in his booth. Uh, there was a major trade route that ran from Egypt up through the land of Israel, clipped by the north side of the Sea of Galilee and continued on into Syria. So likely, Levi is sitting in his tax booth uh, there on a, on a major road and Jesus is walking by. Levi is busy at work, and Jesus calls very simply to him here, follow me. And all at once he gets up from his tax booth, and he walks away from it all. Now, we saw something really similar back in chapter 1, as Jesus calls James and John, and Peter and Andrew, they're out fishing, Jesus calls to them, they leave their nets, they leave their livelihood and they follow Jesus. Something very similar. Mark, throughout his Gospels, we've been seeing, he's putting it before us again and again that Jesus has authority and people respond to that authority. Not even demons are able to resist that authority. And we see it here again. He calls Levi to himself. Now, out of all the people that Jesus could call, he calls Levi the tax collector. If this was a melodrama, uh, this is the point where you would say, boo, hiss, not a tax collector, not one of these guys. Uh, tax collectors weren't exactly considered polite company. Uh, in fact, uh, these kind of guys were very hateable fellows. The vast majority of the population of Israel did in fact hate tax collectors with a passion. They hated people like Levi. And there are at least two reasons that uh, the Jews of Israel hated tax collectors. 
One, tax collectors were notorious extortioners. Tax collectors were extortioners. The Roman government taxed some things directly and some things they, they farmed out. So if it was a tax on your property, the Roman government expected those taxes directly. If it was uh, something like a breathing tax, the poll tax, that's the tax that you get for being alive, uh, they got that directly. You know, if you had a head on your shoulders, they expected you to pay the money. And if you didn't, you might not have a head on your shoulders very long. That was the poll tax. They got the land tax, poll tax directly. Other things like taxes on uh, goods, those sorts of taxes, they would farm out and they would essentially uh, contract the highest bidder. So people could come to the Roman government and say, from the land of Israel, I think that I can get you this much revenue. And the Roman government say, might say, I think we can do better. Somebody might come along and say, well, we can get you this much from Israel. And they might like that enough to say, okay, you've got the contract. And now those tax collectors, they have a group of people helping them do this. They had the Roman authority at their back, and they could go out and get taxes. Now, can you imagine how that might get abused? Could you in your mind see how that might not go so well for the people being taxed? Uh, there was uh, often very crooked dealings here. You know, there was an agreed-upon bill that bid that needed to be filled, but beyond that, tax collectors regularly extorted the taxed. Uh, you know, you can think about, again, taxes on goods. For instance, if somebody were bringing uh, a bunch of goats down the road and they got stopped at the tax booth, uh, perhaps the, the, gro the going rate, a fair tax, might be the equivalent of $20 per head. Uh, the tax collector could charge 30 write down 20 and pocket the rest. That was just a very standard, normal process. Uh, that happened all the time. Uh, and what exactly were you going to do about it if you didn't like it? Uh, the contracted collectors here, uh, they had Roman authority, and Rome really didn't care what they did as long as they got their money when the time was due. Uh, Levi, the tax collector, probably brought in revenue for Rome in that kind of a way. Uh, he is most likely collecting taxes on goods that come by. He's stationed by the roadside. It's a thoroughfare. Um, you know, he was somebody you would want to avoid, of course, but roads that were in proper condition were in short order. Um, Rome was famous for its roads. Um, major highways were very important, and there weren't really a lot of them. So it's kind of hard to, to do uh, a go-around here. Um, you would hate to be stopped by a guy like Levi. So that's just one dimension. The extortion is one dimension of why people hated these tax collectors. The second dimension of why people hated people like Levi is that tax collectors, these ones in particular, were collaborators. They collaborated with the Roman government. Levi was a Jew. He knew the ins and outs of the people he lived around, and he used that information to his benefit. Uh, for many, to collaborate with Rome in this way was an unforgivable offense. Rome represented the subjugation of the Jewish people. As we read the Old Testament, we see that 
Israel had a pretty long history of national sovereignty. And many people, especially in the writing of the New Testament, longed that Israel could return to that. And I think understandably, there were uh, in that then various uh, ways that people resisted. How do people resist this uh, Roman rule? <clears throat> Most commonly, the, the main type of resistance people had was a cultural resistance, a personal resistance, not uh, becoming a part of Roman society, not assimilating into the way that the Romans do things. Uh, most Jews refused to be culturally metabolized into the Roman bloodstream. They didn't want to be Roman. They wanted to be Jewish. And so uh, they, they didn't take up Jewish culture. And those Jews who did take on first the Greek culture, and then when the Greeks took over the Romans, they took on the Roman culture, those people who did that were at least seen as compromisers, and at worst, they were understood as apostates who had rejected everything. There was another type of resistance, not just cultural resistance. Um, some Jews uh, took up arms. They resisted by force. Um, we've, in our passage, seen the scribes. We've seen the Pharisees mentioned. Uh, there's another sect, another group of Judaism. So we read about uh, that they were called the Zealots. They're referenced in Scripture. Um, there's a lot more information outside of the Bible about these people. Uh, they were called the Zealots because they were zealous to restore Israel's national sovereignty. And they often use violence towards that end. Among the Zealots, uh, the, this group isn't mentioned in the Bible, but there was a group of Zealots called the Sicarii. That's Roman, that's Latin for the Daggermen. Uh, they were guys who carried out political assassination. I mean, the dagger was something like the equivalent of the pistol in the ancient world. And they would go around, uh, they, they'd carry off close quarter assassinations, and sometimes that was against Roman officials. That wasn't their favorite target. Their favorite target were people who collaborated with the Roman government. So somebody like Levi would have uh, possibly ended up with a knife in his back at some point. Uh, you might get the picture here after seeing this that tax collectors weren't very liked probably generally associated with themselves because it might not have been safe to associate with others. They, they were a group of people who were hated. They used their power to do harm to other people to fill their pockets. And some tax collectors were very rich. Historical accounts outside of the scriptures talk about the kind of financial means that some of these tax collectors uh, had that they came by from taking funds from people. Uh, so when somebody says tax collectors, we're supposed to say boo. Uh, it's not a good thing. Uh, however, in our account, as we see Jesus come by Levi, he says to him, follow me. Luke's gospel accentuates the fact here that when Levi responds to Jesus, he leaves everything behind. And Mark here, he's just highlighting the fact that Levi responds swiftly. He hears the authority of Jesus and he follows. Now, we're not even at the height of the tension of this story, but we don't want to miss this point. Uh, Levi, also known as Matthew, he listens to Jesus without delay. Uh, 
I think we need to ask ourselves from time to time as followers of Jesus, do I still respond to Jesus this way? Do I still respond when he calls me in this way? With this kind of swiftness. Familiarity can breed laziness. We can be so accustomed to being with Jesus that we assume that maybe he doesn't have a word to direct us or that he doesn't have a word for us that would correct us. But our walk with Jesus is a lifelong pursuit. We will be pursuing him through all eternity. Uh, Our hearts should be ready that if he calls us through his word, something particular, that we would respond with swiftness. And we would follow him uh, at any point of our walk with him. This decisive moment for Levi as he leaves his tax booth, uh, I think is another picture of the faith that's going on in him. We saw in the last account that the paralytic and his friends, their faith was evident in their actions. I think Levi's faith is evident in his action here. And this is probably the moment of salvation for him as he uh, follows Jesus, he leaves everything behind. And so uh, we want to think about this in terms of our ongoing life. If there's anybody here who has not followed Jesus in that way, like Levi here, uh, this text is inviting us to commit our whole lives to him, uh, to, to make him first and to leave everything for him. And as we move on in this text, we're going to see how somebody like Levi, as wretched as Levi, could follow Jesus. Let's turn to that now. We've seen the tax collector at the booth. We've seen him leave it. Uh, Next, we're going to see the tax collectors at the table. I want to reread verse 15 here. So then, as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So Jesus not only calls Levi, He goes on to eat with Levi and his associates. It says here that he's reclining with them. Uh, Now, we often think about our dinner setup. You know, you've got chairs around a table. Uh, It's not exactly how people ate in that time. This isn't just for Israel. This is true all around the Mediterranean. The way that people ate is you'd have a, a low table closer to the ground. You'd have cots or couch kinds of things going out from that. And people would actually... Um, lay down, they'd recline with their head towards the table and their feet out. And, you know, that's, I guess, a pretty comfortable way to, to eat, I suppose. I mean, you don't have to fight for the couch after you've stuffed yourself. You're, you're there already. Uh, that, that was very familiar, but it, it strikes us as weird, you know, when we read this. And what does that mean to recline at table? Or Jesus is in the Last Supper with his disciples and John is, is laying back in his bosom. Uh, the there would have been a posture of reclining, and, and there's relaxation there, there's fellowship there, uh, and, and that's where Jesus is at. He is uh, in the house of Levi. Now, if, if we read this, there'd be some question as he reclined at table in his house. Now, whose house is that? Is that Jesus' house or Levi's house? Mark's gospel might, uh, the grammar might work to make us think that it's Jesus' house. If you jump over to Luke, Luke makes it very clear, in fact, it's Levi's house, um, and that could be the reading here, and Luke confirms it. So Jesus is at Levi's house. He's gone over to his house. Levi has thrown a feast for him. Uh, 
again, this is what Luke says, Luke 5.29, And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. Uh, there are people coming together for this. There's a party that's thrown. Jesus is there. Uh, this is a way to honor Jesus. Uh, I think Levi is celebrating this new life that he's been given, and he is seeking to show honor to Jesus in it. And when the scribes learn about it, they are at the very least perplexed. They're probably scandalized. They ask, as we see here, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why is he doing this? Now, that's a fair enough question. You know, we often naysay the scribes and the Pharisees for being so pharisaical. Uh, but we shouldn't miss the scandal of this moment. This is uh, quite the scandal here. Uh, in this understanding, the Jewish teaching here, exemplary religious teachers were expected to lead by example in commending righteousness and condemning wickedness. Uh, tax collectors and sinners are by definition wicked. They do wicked, hurtful things. They're selfish and greedy. They disregard God. They disregard man. Their just desserts are not cake and ice cream. They deserve eternal punishment. And here is Jesus holding table fellowship with them. Now, on the face of it, it doesn't look acceptable. You know, though, it's interesting. The Pharisees will go to, the scribes will go to the disciples of Jesus and ask about this. They don't go to him directly here. Uh, as the conflict is building, we're going to see more stories of conflict coming. They will go to Jesus. Here they go to the disciples, and they're asking him there. Uh, now, Jesus could have conceivably turned around and tried to clean up the optics of it. You know, he could have tried to make some concessions, make it look better uh, in the eyes of the scribes, could have maybe mitigated the offense, but Jesus doesn't do that. He's really not concerned about pleasing the scribes. In fact, he responds in a way that probably provokes more offense. And in so doing, he turns the conversation on its head. Uh, he responds to them, verse 17, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, that's a powerful picture. Think about it. It is very, very normal for a doctor to work with sick patients. That's kind of what you expect a doctor to do, right? Uh, it would be strange for a doctor to shun sick people. You would expect that a doctor would spend time caring for sick people. That's the picture that Jesus calls to mind here for them. Likewise, by extension, Jesus' mission was not to call the righteous. His mission was to call sinners. The Son of God came into the world to save sinners. And it should be no shock to see him engage them. But it was a scandal to those who are here who spent their entire lives upping their moral game. The real scandal in this story is the scandal of grace. Just as the scribes did not believe that Jesus had the authority to forgive sins, like we saw in the last account, they did not believe that Levi could all of a sudden be acceptable in the sight of God. I think this is the scandal of the gospel itself. 
that somebody so hateable like Levi could find forgiveness just like that. Jesus did not come to call the righteous. There were many scribes, many Pharisees, that considered themselves healthy and strong. They were not sick, so to speak. They were righteous, and they walked headlong into hell. That's a terrifying thought. Their confidence was in themselves, and it got them nothing. But there were scoundrels like Levi who understood that they had nothing good in themselves to commend themselves to God. And they went home justified. That is the shock. That is the scandal of the gospel. It is free. That is beautiful. Here's the heart of the scandal of the gospel. That God justifies the ungodly. You can turn with me to Romans chapter 5 and see this. God justifies the ungodly. Pardon me, this is in Romans chapter 4. I'll read down through verses 1 to 5. Paul has just taught on uh, the work of Jesus on the cross, paying for sins. He begins to talk about justification. Romans chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. There it is. God is called the one who justifies the ungodly. Now, if you read up on any of the history of the Reformation, this was the key point of conflict. Does God justify the godly? Or does God justify the ungodly? According to the Roman Catholic Council of Trent in the 1550s, the understanding was that you believe, you are infused with righteousness, you continue to progress, and that there's this continual infusion of righteousness until you get to the point that you are actually righteous. That was the understanding, that you have the righteousness to enter in, with, certainly with God's help, certainly through faith, but it was a part of the process of getting there. The only people who got into heaven were those who were righteous. The German and the Swiss and the English Reformations all argued no. To the contrary, God justifies the ungodly. Moral improvement does not lead to justification, uh, but uh, it, it always follows a life that has been transformed by God's grace. The scribes in our text understood Rightly, that righteous people go to heaven and wicked people go to hell. They weren't wrong about that. The problem is they assumed that the call of Jesus to repent and believe in the gospel in Mark 1.15, they assumed that that applied to other people. Uh, they were confident that they didn't need that. And they thought that their righteousness was good enough. 
and they missed the beauty of Jesus' gospel. They were scandalized by the free offer of forgiveness. They had no category that somebody like Levi, the tax collector, could be in his tax booth in the morning and in the family of God that evening. They had no idea that something like that could be the case. And it wasn't because it wasn't presented to them. They refused to receive Jesus for who he was. Last week we saw that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. We see this week that authority being played out. We see the power of that authority in the lives of people like Levi. His mission brought him into contact with sinners and tax collectors. And somebody so greedy, so wicked, such a snake in the grass like Levi could find forgiveness in Jesus. And he did. God justified the ungodly. And Levi was never the same. The beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that it is that simple. Believe and be saved. Levi left his old life behind and he followed Jesus. I want to draw out a few more applications for us together here. I think in light of looking through at this text, uh, grappling with it, I think the first thing that we should do is we should rejoice. We should rejoice that this is what has happened for us. That God has forgiven us uh, apart from our pedigree, apart from our effort, apart from overcoming our failures. He has simply and freely forgiven us by faith in his son Jesus Christ. This is the kind of thing that has happened in our hearts. We may not have been saved out of such notorious sins as Levi, um, but we have been saved out of real sin nonetheless. We haven't contributed anything to it. God's work of salvation is unlike anything that we would have concocted. When somebody wrongs us, it's so natural for us to want to exact to the last penny out of them uh, what they've done to us. That's not how God has worked with us. He has sent his son for us. He has paid the price to bring us home. We should rejoice in the scandal of this marvelous grace. Second, I think we should resist the temptation to despair that our past sins will render us useless to God. It can be tempting to think that my past sins, my failure, means that I will be a second-rate Christian, that I will not ever uh, achieve what somebody else will because my sins will hold me back. That's simply not true. You think of somebody like Levi. Uh, he's right in our text before us, hated by everybody, uh, and his life full of sin, and yet he not only finds forgiveness from Jesus, he goes on to be used by the Lord. Jesus will spend all night in prayer and then he will choose a guy like Levi to be one of the 12 apostles. Levi becomes an apostle. Not just that, God works in him by his Holy Spirit and inspires the writing of the Gospel of Matthew. God will even use a scoundrel like this to write scripture. God is able to work through people who have sinned notoriously. He's also able to, to work through people whose sins never hit the newspaper. 
He is able to use us. It's not about us. It's not about our credentials. Uh, he is happy to use us for his glory. Third, I think as a, a church family, as we think about this and in our lives personally, we should be prepared to welcome people into fellowship who were previously our enemies. Somebody like Levi would have been a friend of Caesar and a foe to pretty much everybody else in Israel. Jesus called Levi to follow him, and he did. That changed everything in the life of Levi. We should be prepared and hopeful that perhaps in our day, God would still be working in the hearts of people like Levi. That people who we might regard as the worst would come running to Christ. And that we would accept them as brothers and sisters in our fellowship. We should pray towards that end. We should be prepared for that. Jesus has called people, even like Levi, to himself, and he calls us to follow him. Let's do that with our whole lives. Let's be quick to hear his call and quick to respond. Well, if the men would prepare for communion and Maggie would come to play, let's go to prayer together.